0: This is the Content Strategy Podcast, and I'm your host, Christina Halverson. On each and every episode, I interview someone I admire who's doing meaningful work in content strategy and all its adjacent disciplines. If you care about making content more useful, usable, and inclusive for all, welcome in. You have found your people. Hello. Welcome back. It's me, Christina. Uh, It's very cold here in Minnesota. I know that that is surprising to those of you who live in the Midwest where it's cold everywhere, Uh, but it really snowed hard yesterday, like eight, nine inches. And uh, yeah, that's all I got. It is when things, when it snows like that, everything slows down and I just become like the least productive person on the face of the planet, which is why it's really great to have a passion project that you look forward to because that gets you right back up on the horse. And good news, this is my passion project. And with me today is someone that I'm very, very excited about. I was going to also like call him my passion project, but that that's very weird. And it just, it doesn't translate. So I'm not even going to ask the producer to cut that out because I am laughing to myself. Uh, Hey, Let me welcome to the stage right now, Corey Villhauer. And Corey, don't talk yet. I'm going to read your bio. Uh, Corey is the director of strategy at Blend Interactive, where he's responsible for leading the strategic design process with a focus on content strategy and information architecture. Corey is the co-author of the Web Project Guide from Spark to Launch and Beyond, an overview of the web process from ideation to post-launch governance. He also writes at length about methodology, Writing for accessibility and shoestring content strategy at Eating Elephant, which is his blog, and writes about other things at CoreyVilleHoward.com. He is a recovering advertising copywriter, a closeted fan of professional wrestling, which I guess it now outed, and a playlist pack rat. Corey, can I talk now? Yeah, now you can talk.
1: That's good as your passion oh. project.
0: <laughs> Welcome to my little <laughs> passion project. His name is Corey.
1: <laughs> this is I, weird. It's got really know, weird all the time. I know. I
0: this is. I make it weird almost immediately every time. <laughs> it's like my. It's like my personal brand. It's Christina Hoverson making it weird <laughs> since 2008. Um, where are you, Corey? Where are you right now?
1: Uh, well, I, I'm in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So we also got the same uh, snow and cold that you have.
0: Have I ever told you that Sioux Falls is one of my very favorite cities in the Midwest? You haven't said
1: that. W- why?
0: I don't know. And I discovered it when I came to speak at your conference, Louis, yeah. many years ago.
1: Yeah, Sioux Falls is great. Uh, Sioux Falls is a kind of a perfect little mix between, like, we still we still have a little bit of small town Midwest in us, but I mean, we're we at least are big enough to have uh, two targets um, <laughs> and four WalMarts.
0: It's the perfect. It's the perfect size, really.
1: <laughs> yeah, it really is.
0: But then you have, like, outstanding art all throughout, like, your downtown area. I remember this.
1: Yeah, we we have great restaurants. We have a, a lot of great stuff. We have me, your personal passion project. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Should we start? Should I just start over? I'm not going to start over. It's <laughs> no. Good. This is really good content so far. Um, Corey, let's be real. Okay. Uh, I off every podcast episode, uh, both by a complaining about the weather, but B asking my guests, if you could tell me a little bit about how you came to content strategy.
1: Yeah. Um, so I was, as you read in the bio, uh, I was an old, uh, marketing copywriter and I hated it. I didn't hate it. I enjoyed getting paid to write. Uh, and what I really wanted to do was like build websites and I didn't know how to build websites. And so, uh, I had like when the ad agency would have like a small website that would come in, I would always try to like shove my way in and say, hold on, let me, let me figure this out. I'm going to, I'll write content for the website. I will organize the website. Uh, and then nobody would ever let me do that. And so I asked on the internet one day, uh, on Twitter, uh, twitter.com, uh, back in back when twitter.com was still awesome. And that's how you made all your connections. Uh, I reached out to, um, Abby Jones, who, um, I don't, I honestly don't even know what Abby does anymore. I think she's kind of a, a big deal at Google, but at the time, uh, she was just somebody I knew through a site called nine rules and nine rules was essentially a blogging network, um, that would reward people, not reward people, but select people based on the quality of their blog content. Uh, and I had a blog back then. And so I, I joined that and got to know Abby through there. And I said, Hey, um, I want to write for websites. What do I do? And she said, well, that's called content strategy and you should go do that. And I realized now that was an like incredibly like not is not a super accurate uh, description of it at the time, but at the time that's kind of like what, what how the easy the shorthand of what content strategy was 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 just how like, you're writing for websites. So then I uh, kind of looked into it some more. I bought uh, your book. Um, I remember writing a blog post uh, that was called "On Discovering Content Strategy," and I was just gushing over it. I had reached out to Dean Barker, who um, at the time was the partner at Blend Interactive. And, and said like, Hey, I knew him through Sioux Falls, the Sioux Falls blogosphere. And I said, Hey, help me get a job in the web. And he said, well, here, you should go apply for this job. And then after a year, we'll hire you at blend. And then like three weeks, three, three months later, maybe he reached out and said, actually, let's just, we'll just hire you now. So then I I jumped into, uh, I jumped into the, the web world and I started a content strategy practice before really understanding what content strategy was at all. Uh, I read a lot of books. I stole a lot of ideas. And then, yeah, that was, that was pretty much, uh, that's pretty much it. And then I kind of have been hacking my way through it now for 13 years.
0: So I want to go back to the very beginning mm-hmm. when you said you hated your job as a marketing copywriter. Why did you hate it?
1: Well, I am an old, like punk kid. And this is stupid to say, cause I work in like, you know, a web shop, which is like not a punk job. But it really kind of like went against like m- marketing and advertising really I, like it always felt kind of gross to me. Uh, so I wanted to get out of it and get more into sort of like I was less about promotion and I wanted to get more into like information structure and information itself. You know, I I was more of a library scientist, I think, at heart than uh, than a copywriter. And I I think that sort of continues today. Like at Blend, we don't do a lot of copywriting. We do hardly any copywriting. We don't do... A lot of the content side of, of content strategy, we do a lot more in terms of structure. And that's really what I like doing, like organizing concepts and figuring out ways to build a content model that works. And uh, But at the time, you know, like writing ads for hospital systems was not like a, an ideal way for me to live. I appreciated the paycheck and I liked it better than all the other jobs I had had at that point, but I was looking to do something a little bit more, um, I don't know, meaningful, I guess, which is, I don't want to disparage ad people because they're all good people at heart, I think. Well, I don't know.
0: Many many of them. Anyone, any ad person listening to this podcast is a gem. Oh, uh,
1: they're all perfect. Yeah,
0: that's right. They're all perfect in every way.
1: Mm
0: The really, you know, I I also started out. Well, I I mean, like every content strategist, I had one million jobs before Mm -hmm. I started. You know, before I kind of fell in love, just like you, with you know, writing for websites and thinking about usability and information structure and so on. But I. I just, I, the, the reason that I asked is that I do feel like there are identifying sort of shared values between the communication, the styles and the promotional work that we did and the, the people that we had to work with and the different, like, I don't know, the review process and the, and the, all the different stakeholders, you know, talk because there were so many important lessons. I feel like I took away from my early days as a marketing and an, and an ad copywriter so You work with a lot of clients now, like talk a little bit about your memories from that time in terms of like the direction that you were receiving and the briefs that you were getting and how you were, how you sort of learned how to navigate those relationships.
1: Yeah, I, I didn't learn any of those because we were, it was, it was largely a, a very top heavy, um, very top heavy ad agency. It was, there was a handful of people who, you know, had founded the company or had been there a really long time. And they were client facing and I was in meetings, but I didn't get to talk to clients very much, which was, you know, looking at the time, I was like, thank God, because I, I was, you know, I was scared. I was still like a kid. I was scared to talk to clients about stuff. I didn't want anyone to say my stuff was bad. I would make give, It would make me really sad if somebody was like, I don't like this. And so I didn't learn any of those skills that you need to be able to actually like communicate to a client or even communicate to a team member. I just did my work and hoped it was good um it took getting into um it took moving over to blend after you know four years of of copywriting to realize like hey now you're gonna go feed this part go in there and talk to them about that and and learning how to sort of better communicate to them what uh what they needed and also what we needed as far as um you know how do you critique this in a way that's helpful how do you um how do you present this in a way that that doesn't get too far into the weeds? I, I didn't learn any of that stuff at the ad agency, which was which was kind of too bad. It's I, I wish people would teach that. I wish that should be a better focus of onboarding, um, <laughs> like any new employee, uh, is, is getting them in front of clients and having them understand how to speak to them. But that's really, really nerve-wracking to an agency because you also want to put your best foot forward in all ways, and we're very, we're very afraid to let somebody fail in the name of a company.
0: You know, as we're talking, I'm just having this realization that when I stepped over to writing for websites, I was stepping over from basically doing like advertising and catalog copywriting Mm -hmm. and they wouldn't let me talk to the client. But when you're writing for websites, you have to talk to the client. And that's like the whole core thing of why people become content strategists. (laughs) I think in the first place is that we're just like, you can't just call me for the words. you know, you you need to like bring me into the meetings because I have questions beyond just, you know, is this tone supposed to be fast, fun and friendly? So so it's really interesting to me that like that experience was so frustrating and so distasteful to you, and then you like rolled into where you know, you could really center communication words and information in a way that you were able to kind of drive the conversation,
1: yeah. we're we're all perfectionists. We're all control freaks. We all—the the only difference is that some are more introverted, and so that they speak up only when necessary, and some are more extroverted, and they speak up all the time.
0: Hey, you don't know me.
1: I, I know. I know you. I know you, Christina.
0: I know. I know. I. I. I, I know. Maybe
1: after all of this, I, you're actually my passion project.
0: <laughs> <laughs> By the end of this conversation, I will be. That's right. Hey, Corey, tell me a little bit about Blend Interactive.
1: Uh, Blend Interactive is a web shop here in the Midwest. Uh, we do a lot of uh, content-managed focused uh, websites. Um, we uh, really focus on sort of like complex content problems, and by which we mean, uh, you know, complicated integrations or how to build a complex content model or sort of all the, the more technical side of content and web and design. Um, we're not doing a lot of ad sites. We're not doing a lot of like marketing focused uh, splash pages or anything like that, but we are doing a lot of university and hospital and information heavy uh, uh, websites. And so, um, you know, I think that's kind of why I fit in really well there is that that stuff's very interesting to me and it always has been very interesting to me.
0: And what, what is interesting you about it? Is it the complex relationship between types of content and, and figuring out content models and taxonomies and so on? Is it, you know, within the organizations and all the different humans that are creating and fighting over and fighting for the content, Just like talk to me a little bit about why that is exciting to you.
1: Yeah. It's a little bit of both. Um, uh, we, we talked about this before we hopped on, but I was just, I spent five days on a cruise last week and uh, like uh, there was a significant portion of each day where I kind of looked at the cruise as the, as a metaphor for uh, a website, uh, which is depressing to think about, honestly, that I was (laughs) thinking about that on my cruise vacation, but you, you look at like the number for, for like a, a, a website that has a ton of content connections that has a ton of structure and a really complex model, you know, a university site where you have multiple different departments, all kind of pushing content all in the same spot, and you have to be able to connect it in a way. And, and manage it in a way uh, that 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 still makes sense and is utterly unperceptible to the to the actual user. Um, so so too is a cruise ship. Uh, there are uh, I don't know all of these crazy systems that have been put together and they somehow they work and nobody knows how except for the people who built them. But how they can sort of manage the fact that like listen you got to shut this door for your air conditioning to work, which makes sense because otherwise it would you know. Create a vacuum in your room, and then the door would slam too much. Uh, and then, if you open this door over here, it actually leads to some piping system that goes three floors up. And it's all perfectly put together in a way that, can, that 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 fits into the smallest space possible. But on top of that, so that's the technical side of it. On top of that, you have to have a team of people who know how to manage each of these individual pieces, and that's as complex. Watching sort of the the way that people interacted the way they would essentially like we stopped at an island one day and half the staff from the ship got off of the ship and go and went and worked the island they all have special roles over there as well and then they would come back and they would take up their old spots and the the systems at play in both the technical the technical side of the ship and the people side of the ship were, were absolutely fascinating to me um that's my long way of saying it. i think it's really interesting uh, as far as websites go as well
0: I, I do need to say here for the record that when you told me that you went on a cruise for Thanksgiving, I immediately reacted with if I had to name five people in the world who I didn't think would ever go on a cruise, that your name would be on that list.
1: And you can, I'm still on that list now. I have not moved off that list. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I
0: I'll leave you on that list. You've, you've fallen down a little bit because you did, in fact, actually go on a cruise, but that's yeah. okay. You can, I'll save your spot. Um. Yeah. I think that this interplay between technical systems and uh, systems within the content itself and how we are working systems within our organizations, all of that sort of comes to life in a website. And that is we do, we've talked a lot recently about content design within applications and even within application of product ecosystems, mm-hmm. but A website is like the digital manifestation of your business for everyone to see. I mean, Megan Casey talks about it as like everybody's seeing your corporate underpants on display. So tell me a little bit about then when you are working with clients and they come to you and they're like, our website, we have this super complex, awful content problem. We actually have a million content problems. Do they often come to you with like, and we don't know where to start or, and we have this specific project you want us to work
1: on? Yeah. they come in in two ways. One of them is that they they come to us and they say, "Hey, uh, where do we start?" And that is that's ultimately where the Web Project Guide came from. The book that uh, Dean and I wrote. I mentioned Dean earlier. Dean uh, was an old partner at Blending. I works at a, a company called Optimizely. Uh, Dean Barker and I wrote a book called the Web Project Guide. Uh, the Web Project Guide ultimately was a it started as a PDF that we wrote to give to clients to say, "Here's kind of what the web project looks like. Here is the." Here's sort of the context of all these different things we're going to ask you to do so that when we say, hey, let's do a discovery workshop, let's um, talk to all of your users, let's do stakeholder interviews, let's put together a content audit, here's why we're doing this, and here's where this will be used later on. And so we would give them you know, essentially that high-level high overview and then begin kind of using the discovery process to just ask uh, thousands of questions about what do you need? What do you think you need? What do people around you think they need? What does your boss think that they need? And how can we tell them they probably don't? And then like a, a bunch of stuff until you have a giant pile of ideas. And then you say, okay, well, we're going to decide out of this giant pile of ideas, how many of these are actually viable? How many of these actually can be done with your existing you know, uh, workforce? And how much of this is just like a sort of pie in the sky uh, dreaming? Uh, The the other option is that somebody comes in and they know exactly what they want. And in that sense, they don't really need any of my help, but we find out usually really quickly later on, they needed a lot of my help. They just didn't want it. Uh, It was a case of a lot of times it's a case of they haven't, they've already done their own strategy work and they're doing their own strategy work through the lens of what they've already done before, or they're doing a lot of their strategy work um, from the lens of this is what somebody who's in charge thinks they need. Uh, And so even when they, even when a client comes in with, like a full plan and they just want us to to design and implement a set of wireframes they're bringing us, we still kind of shoehorn in a lot of those questions around, Hey, why are you doing this? Uh, What are you missing? Like we'll, we'll sort of, we'll position a discovery session as more of a, like a kickoff. And then we'll accidentally ask them all the questions and try to highlight the ideas that they have that aren't really viable and they don't always go away. A lot of times, you know, like with any project, you end up building something that may not end up being used. But um, for the most part, uh, we try to get all of that information out at the very start.
0: One of the things that I find can really derail those kinds of projects in particular very early on is missing the opportunity to create a real shared understanding about what you're talking about in the first place. How do you go about doing that? Because the way that you are used to talking about something at Blend versus the way that your client is used to talk about talking about something versus the way eight of their business partners that they are going to need to work with talk about something can really cause massive friction throughout a project lifecycle. How do you, how do, what do you do preventatively
1: around that? Hopefully with a, it's, it's hard to do with a project, like I said, the second kind of project. So I'm not going to go too deep into that. It's harder to, it's harder to do with somebody who's coming in and just saying, can we build this stuff? But if we are able to be present from the very beginning, from the sort of ideation phase, from from being able to say, let's get your ducks in a row to start and and move from there. The the idea of that sort of shared understanding, that shared language really comes from almost like a a respect for the idea that the client doesn't understand our industry as well as they think they do. And that's not their fault. That's, That's our fault. We as practitioners are very... We don't do a great job of explaining what we do to people who don't do what we do. And I say this because this is something we ran into when we wrote the Web Project Guide. And the re- reason we realized the Web Project Guide was a viable project, um, it's written for non-web practitioners. It's written for people who can who can read it and pull a chapter out and understand, oh, this is what happens and this is why it happens. Um, you know, This is why we do a content inventory um, rather than just giving them a blog post that says, here's how you do a content inventory because in a lot of senses they're not doing them you know or they're they're hiring they're just hiring somebody who can do it they they just they don't need to know all the details they just need to know why it matters and i think we can we really often get stuck in this idea of needing to show expertise by almost cloaking the details of of what we do of of like hiding behind the idea that we are the experts and that we are going to make everything right and they don't really need to worry about how that's going to work um i i The projects that we've done that have worked the best are projects in which at the very beginning, we have set a base level of just project management, you know, like, hey, here's the language we're going to use. When we say this, this is what we mean. When we are doing meetings, we will try as hard as we can to do meetings in the way that you're used to. We're we're very often, clients are ultimately strangers in our world. Um, they they come in. They're working with a web team. They're trying to build a project. They kind of have a vague idea of what they want at the end, but all they know is that they're under a lot of stress and they're really putting a lot of trust in some agency to do the work they hope to do. And oftentimes, because of this, they're immediately skeptical because an agency or a web practitioner may not be essentially treating them with a sort of a level of hey, here's how we're going to do this. Uh, they're they're not. They're not treating them with a level of, we understand how this is hard and we're going to help you through these pieces. And I don't want to make it sound like we're babying clients. It's it's more like in order to fully uh, get buy-in, in order to fully build uh, any kind of shared understanding, you have to really slow things down at the start and explain step-by-step, step, here is why these things matter and here's how they're going to happen. Uh, because ultimately, when it comes back to it, they're not strangers in our world. We are strangers in theirs. We're barging in to their existing organization and we're saying, here's how we're going to do things. And it doesn't always work because they already have expectations of how things are going to be done. It's, it's a lot easier to, for us, you know, the five people working on the project, to change our ways and to help adapt to them than it is to ask their entire company to change to our ways.
0: How, if you are doing that and trying to juggle that across various clients, what are some of the tools that you rely on to kind of keep process straight?
1: Uh, a, a lot of meetings. Um, tools aren't meetings, but or meetings aren't tools, but I guess they kind of are tools. And I, I don't mean a lot of meetings, but frequent short status meetings that help identify, here's what this piece is doing and here's where it's going to go next. Um, like, a set, I think, like
0: a set cadence of meetings.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Essentially like a weekly status call, even, yeah. if, we have, if, we, even if we don't have a status call we're going to at least touch base for five minutes and say, here's what we're working on. Yeah. The last thing we want to do is disappear behind a cloak and show up in that. And this is another thing that always drove me crazy about the ad world. We don't want to show up with this grand reveal. We don't want to pop up and say like, here's your site map. And then they look at the sitemap map and they say, ah, this is wrong in eight different ways. And here's why. Yeah. Um, all of which each of those eight different ways could have been handled differently. If we would have just been kind of running things by them, if we send them, a Google doc and say, hey here's your sitemap it's not a magic document it's just a spreadsheet that's helping us yep. organize them I mean that otherwise like tools tools one of the things that we've started doing recently and we've always said we were going to do it but it's just hard to fit it into your schedule is to create essentially a glossary like a shared a shared glossary that says um, you know here's what we mean when we mean this um, it ends up becoming a part of their ongoing Project through their uh we use a a tool called Redmine to organize tickets and things later on in development. We'll add that in. You know, we'll make sure that we are um clear in that when we say this, we mean this. And when they say something, they mean they mean this. And so you don't run into any issues. Like um, I, I worked on a project once where the client kept asking for a use model. And I'm like, cool, great, we're gonna do a use model. And then I would go and look up what a use model is and I'd say. I don't, I don't know what this is because there is no definition for it. It's not a thing. A use model is not a thing. And so then I kind of made up a thing that is a use model. And I don't even know what a use model is, but I know what we call a use model now. And I can give an example and say, okay, hey, this is what a use model is. Um, a use model essentially just being a spreadsheet that, that uh, takes, it takes user stories and translates them into a content model is, is kind of how we use it. I want one of those. I'll, I'll send you one.
0: You know, you could put it on the internet and then I could link to it in podcast notes.
1: Yeah, I should do that. I'll do that. Are
0: you allowed to do that? Okay.
1: Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll make it a, uh, I'll anonymize it.
0: You could put it on coryvillhauer.com.
1: Well, coryvillhauer.com is not a work blog. That's oh. a, that's a, that's a personal feelings blog. I'll put it on eating which is the one You don't
0: blog. have personal feelings about use models.
1: <laughs> I do, but you don't want to hear him. no
0: more passion project. You have been fired from I some failed. passion project. I failed. That's right. You know, you're when did you start that eating elephant blog?
1: Oh, forever ago. Dean told me the Dean was my boss once. Uh Dean told me, you need to start a blog and you should buy the URL so that if you ever leave, you can keep it. And I said, Great. Okay. So I called it Eating Elephant uh for two reasons. Uh one of them was that uh, well, it's one big reason. I actually, uh, conflated the two stories, one of which was the, uh, the story behind the sketch that you had on your, uh, your, a list of part article way back in the day, the elephants, the, the people eating the the people looking at the elephant, right?
0: Yeah. And so that, I, I'm not sure I actually knew that was yeah. the case that, and that art that will link to that too. But that article, um, was called the discipline of content strategy. And, uh, a little bit of a big deal. I'm not going to lie to you. It was a uh, it, it pretty big deal, but there was a fantastic illustration of people looking at an elephant from many different parts of it. And that, what is that aphorism? it's like blind people looking at all the different parts of an elephant and trying to figure out what it is. I don't remember. Anyway. Okay. Continue.
1: Yeah. So um when I first saw that, I immediately thought uh, well, this is actually, um, that, that, uh, that idiom of how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? <laughs> That's not what it is. I created the blog. I created the blog and I looked at it later and I'm like, what the hell am I doing? So you
0: thought that illustration was people preparing to feast on an elephant.
1: Yes. 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 And I, I even look at it this, to this day and I'm like, why, why did I think they were all going to eat the elephant?
0: that's good stuff.
1: So that's where Surely the eating we had from. this
0: conversation, but it, that that was literally like <laughs> probably 13 years ago.
1: Yeah. I mean, it worked out well because the domain was available too. So I was like, right. eating elephant. You know why forward. it was
0: available? Because, <laughs> yeah, because it's not a, a thing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Cause it's not real. I made that that's up completely. Right.
0: That's right. Cause it makes no sense whatsoever.
1: It's not, it's not how do, it's not. It's not how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? It's something else too. I think it's like not even an elephant in that, in that saying. It, doesn't is matter.
0: it I think, it is. I think it is an elephant. Okay. I'm going to give it to you, Corey. Thanks. Yeah. You're welcome. But that is, that's how we met though. I know was through that blog post. And well,
1: okay. So this is, we met before this. Um, Cause I oh. took that blog, I took that post and I, I, that post actually was originally on my personal blog um, before I had a, a, a content strategy blog. Uh, I was still at the ad, ad agency. Um, When I wrote on discovering content strategy, in I fact, it De- all comes back around. Yeah, Dean told me later on. He's like, "Oh, I read that, and I realized that's the reason. That's that's the point in which you were going to quit and come work at Blend." Uh, and I was like, "Yeah, that's that's pretty that's pretty obvious." I was yeah. I was ready to go into yeah, into yeah, the yeah, web, yeah. Right. and I had posted a, I posted that on Twitter. And I think at the time, you probably had some back in the day when it was still viable. You put you had a probably a search for content strategy that's on right. Twitter.
0: That's right. And, well, it, and it popped is- up
1: and you, and you tweeted it. And I didn't not like, I didn't know who you were. And I was like, who's this person? And I went and looked, and I was like, oh, that's the author of the book I just read. Oh. <laughs> that's,
0: that's, that's right. Again, yeah. personal brand is power of the personal brand. Yeah. yeah. Well, all the way back around Twitter is how we all found each other back in the yeah. day when you could search hashtag content strategy and actual like meaningful things came up from the 16 people who were tweeting about it. I think that people who listen to this podcast really get sick of me being like "Ah, back in the day, but I, I refer back to it so often, not only because it seems like day before yesterday, Mm -hmm. but also because it's, it just really informs like how things have, where things have landed as of today Mm -hmm. in terms of how there was a small group of us and we all knew content was complicated. And we all knew it was important and we Mm -hmm. all wanted it to serve the user. And that set us apart from copywriters and marketing and folks who had been making the words for, you know, time eternal. And now just seeing today how we have all really started to dig into our different areas of specialization website content strategy, uh, content engineering or managing Mm -hmm. the content models, uh, and in relationship between, between different content types, et cetera, um, content design, content marketing. It's just really, really exciting to me to see like where we were and where we're going and how people like you are really leading the way into these other areas of specialization, like website content strategy and information, um, Uh, relationships on websites. It's pretty great. It is pretty great. You're going to talk about that at Confab coming up uh, next May.
1: I am going to talk about that. Uh, I'm going to talk about demystifying content strategy. Um, This is a thing I've been kind of poking on. And I, I noticed you, you were doing a really good job of leading me into, uh, to questions that would, that would get me to talk about it, which I appreciate. Um, this idea I of, demy-
0: read, listen, I didn't oh, no, you it did it.
1: <laughs> hey man, that, that it just means you're a really good podcast host.
0: It's that's it, um, exactly what that. Means. Yeah.
1: This idea of sort of demystifying web design is really important to me because I work with a lot of people, you know, on every project and they're like, they're afraid It's not that they're afraid because they've like hired a company and they want us to do the thing we want to do, but nobody wants to look stupid. And that includes a client talking to a practitioner. And I want to let them know, like, listen, like literally everyone who does any of this work is still kind of making it up as it goes along because it changes all the time. It's always changing. So none of us are a hundred percent perfect at anything. And none of us should be like, you should never be nervous to talk to a content strategist about content strategy because I promise you're not the first person who's asked them a question that you might think is dumb, because it's not dumb. Like, this is a new process. You don't need to know this. We need to know this. Practitioners need to know this.
0: Or we we need to go figure, or we need to know that we don't know it and then go figure it out, which is the
1: whole point. (laughs) Exactly. Yes, exactly. But clients don't need to know all the stuff. That's what they hired us to do. Um, And so it's our job to essentially demystify this idea that that we're working behind some sort of like weird, not behind, within of this black box, that there's this hidden process in there. It's not, it's just like, a giant chunk of what we do is helping people understand what's important and what's not important, like what to focus on and what not to focus on. And And so I I, I hope that the talk really touches on like, here's what you need to focus on to be able to make it work better for clients you're working with or team members. And then the book as well. Like I, I say book because I'm working on trying to, I'm trying to get a book out there. Um, uh, yeah, we'll get it.
0: Well, and I, We're putting that talk on the main stage at Confab. It is, as you know, it is the very last Confab happening next May. And I just feel like this is going to be an extraordinary gift to some people on their way to be able to give them that that, uh, new lens on how they're thinking about their work and new language and ways in which to communicate with clients and team members about their work. If you're a fan of content strategy, you may be familiar with Confab, which is the conference my company Brain Traffic produces. Well, after a stellar 12-year run, next spring will be our very last Confab. I know it's going to be our best event yet, and we would love to have you join us. So visit confabevents.com, check out the program and all our incredible speakers, And if you decide to register, you can use promo code PODCAST100 to save $100 off any in-person ticket. That is promo code PODCAST100 because you are hearing about it on a podcast. Hope to see you there. Uh, Corey, before we go, I also just would like to acknowledge and give a shout out that you are one of two human beings who have attended every single confab uh-huh. since we uh, debuted in 2011. So I'm so grateful that you're going to be with us again this May and on the main stage this time. I'm, so I'm very excited about it. You. Yeah,
1: thank you. Thank yeah, you. Oh, so hey, I'm, I have one question about that. One question. Yeah. Is Eileen Webb, who I think is also going to be on the main stage, is she before or after me?
0: Why do you ask?
1: Because I because her talk makes people cry, and I don't want to go after that.
0: <laughs> you don't know. You don't know. You'll have to check the schedule. Her Great. talk does make people cry. It, uh, in fact, that is how Tanessa continued to refer to it over and over during programming. Well, Eileen's going to give the talk that makes people cry. So therefore, mm-hmm. every time. It's mm-hmm. true. I'll let Eileen know that she got a shout out for that reason on this episode. Corey, thank you so much for coming on the show today and chatting with me. You are, as always, a delight. And uh, good luck with your book. And we'll see you in May.
1: Thank you, Christina.
0: Thanks so much for joining me for this week's episode of the Content Strategy Podcast. Our podcast is brought to you by Brain Traffic, a content strategy services and events company. It's produced by Robert Mills with editing from Bear Value. Our transcripts are from Rev.com. You can find all kinds of episodes at contentstrategy.com. And you can learn more about brain traffic at braintraffic.com. See you soon.